Hey everybody, welcome back to Mavericks and Misfits. Grateful that you have tuned in today. I know I say that at the beginning of every podcast, but it's always true. Um, Just the fact that you would take a little bit of time and let me pour into you means the world to me. It's what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And uh, there's so many avenues. One of the great things about living in the generation in which you are living and when I'm living Uh, is that there's just so many incredible avenues by which we can advance the kingdom. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not slick. I'm not very cool. I am, um, I'm limited in what my giftings are, but one of the things that God, for whatever reason, his sovereign plan has enabled me to do is, uh, use words to be able to help people in their journey with Jesus. And that's, that's really what Mavericks and Misfits is about, um, is just exhortation, a little instruction, uh, provoking you to think and giving a strong, I hope strong pushbacks on the version of status quo Christianity that has really not served the church in the United States very well. Um, I was saved later in life after growing up in the church. I grew up in the church, very loving and kind people all around me tried their best to get the gospel in me, but I had a rebel heart and I wasn't interested in anything like a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. So I did what a lot of people did um, when they were young. And uh, again, I don't want to throw stones. I think people meant well, and they're just kind of perpetuating what they were taught. But the goal seemed to be evangelistically uh, back then, and I still think in certain places it is today, to get people to pray the sinner's prayer. And if you're not familiar with the sinner's prayer, the sinner's prayer goes something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I place my faith in you. Come into my heart and save me today in Jesus name. Amen. And forms of that kind of prayer were propagated evangelistically, um, just constantly. Um, because it's a, it's basically out of, you know, a few verses in the book of Romans and specifically whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Um, and I get it. I understand the simplicity of that. That in all actuality, at the moment of salvation, there is some form of calling upon the Lord. There is the need for you to understand that Jesus is your only hope. Therefore, when he died on the cross, that's your only option to having your sins uh, paid for. And so that that's kind of formed into a, a, a programmed prayer, a formulized prayer that says, Jesus, come into my heart. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again the third day. Come into my heart. Save my soul. Amen. And I do believe that probably scores and scores of people were legitimately saved as they prayed that prayer, but they weren't saved because of that prayer. This is what I want to give pushback on today. I'm just going to go ahead and launch into today's stuff. We'll skip the preliminaries. But um, so for me, I prayed that prayer, I think for the first time around eight or nine years old. And uh, to the degree that I was sincere, I was sincere, but I don't remember anybody ever telling me anything about repentance. I believed the Bible facts about Jesus dying on the cross. I believed the Bible facts about Jesus rising from the dead. I believed that Jesus was the son of God. Um, I believed that in some form or fashion, he was my only hope. So there wasn't an intellectual problem with understanding the data the facts from the gospel. I I completely said yes to all of those things. But what's interesting is after praying that prayer and then a few years later being water baptized, 
all during my young years and especially in my teenage years, there was zero evidence of a born again experience. There was zero evidence of me being a new creation in Christ. My desires were not toward God at all. My desires were still very self-focused, even as a young child. And then especially it blew up in my teenage years. And as a matter of fact, while I held on to the fact that I had prayed that prayer as a, as a young boy, during my teenage years, I lived in 100% open rebellion against God and all the things of God. And I sought to live to please myself and my flesh. So the dilemma for a lot of people in the church, and I would say we need to be evaluating this right now because I don't believe it's merely a dilemma. I believe we have like a very, very serious problem in our churches. And here, let me express it this way. A lot of people have prayed the prayer. A lot of people have asked Jesus into their heart. A lot of people have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, and they have said, yes, I certainly believe these things. And many of those very same people that I just described are going to die and go to hell because they've never been born again. They've never been saved. And the reason why is because they have believed the facts, but never have they sensed that they were a hopeless, helpless, damned, dead sinner who had to be brought to life by Jesus Christ. They did not sense their own deep, desperate need to be forgiven, to be saved, to be rescued, nor did they embrace any sense of a commitment of the biblical truth that when you come to Jesus Christ, you die to yourself. Now, it's not instantaneous. We are all perpetually dying more and more to self, but we have completely left out of the American gospel, and I call it the American gospel because it's not the biblical gospel. We have completely left out for decades, if not the better part of a century, maybe 80 years, we've completely left out the reality that when you come to Jesus Christ, you lose your life. You lose your life. Jesus said, he that would lose his life will find it. You repent. It, you, when, when the Bible speaks of repenting, it means a change, a radical shift in how you think about God and yourself. It is metanoia is the Greek word. It means a shifting, almost a 180 of how you think. You're going in one direction. You are confronted with the gospel. You are humbled by the gospel. You receive the gospel. And when you get, you move forward from that moment, you're going the different direction than you were before you received the gospel. So of necessity, there is a life change. Now, the younger you are, the more difficult it is to discern that life change as it begins to happen. But I would say that if people have been saved and they are now into their teenage years, and especially into their adult years, and there is actually no transformation of who they were before they came to Christ, then you prayed the prayer, but you did not receive the Son of God. Now, my goal here is not to frighten genuinely born-again people into doubting their salvation. My goal here is to expose that what the Bible says about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, what the Bible says, not what your church says, not what the evangelist said, not what your pastor says, not what your favorite podcaster says, not what the American culture says, what the Bible says. 
is that when you come to Jesus Christ, it is not an option whether or not you become a cross-carrying disciple of Jesus. There are no two tiers of salvation. I was actually taught that as a young Christian, that there is this wide, wide, wide open door, and all you've got to do is believe the facts. And then, you know, if you're really serious about Jesus, you go on to discipleship. And but then I remember being told by one of my mentors right after I got saved that most people don't choose discipleship, and that's why you have carnality in the church, but they're saved. And over the years, as I searched the Bible, I found no biblical pattern for that. I mean, I found nothing. As a matter of fact, I found the exact opposite. That those who are truly born again receive in themselves the nature of God by faith because the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, literally takes up residence in their home in every Christian. Not in some, not in the super disciples. Every single born-again person houses God the Spirit within them. And we're told that, that the Spirit, when he moves inside of us, his yearning and his longing and his cry is Abba, Father. Meaning, as the Holy Spirit comes to live within inside the human spirit, the human spirit is now crying out Abba, Father. Meaning a longing, a desperation, a hunger, a desire to be more close to the Father. And so when I see that, I wonder to myself, I say, well, why then, why then do so many Christians seem apathetic about God? Why do Christians seem bothered with concepts like serving God, <laughs> making time to worship God, talking with God to prayer, reading God's book? Why is that a bother? Why is that boring? Why is that um, a nuisance? Why does that feel like legalism to some, some supposed Christians? Well, if the Holy Spirit is in us longing to be with the Father, you know, your flesh is never going to want to roll out of bed and spring into action doing, you know, spiritual calisthenics. I get that. But we're not of the flesh. We're of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit lives within us. And so in, in, if time has gone by, I'm not saying this happens to everybody the day after they get saved, but I'm going to tell you this. If you're living six months, 12 months, 18 months, five years into your supposedly born again experience and your desires have not changed if if your attitudes have not changed if your hungers are still the same as they were before whatever that experience you had was spiritual experience um you miss something something didn't happen you may have gone through the externals of a religious moment but if there is no internal transformation you cannot justifiably say biblically anyway that you belong to god you can wish it you can want it you can have a chorus of people telling you no don't listen to that kind of talk because you're absolutely saved romans 10 9 and 10 and you know you you called on the name of the lord you're saved well let's let's just go beyond paul's writing to the church at rome because you don't you, you don't just get to pick a couple of verses and say, I'm just staking my eternity on these. Because yes, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Now, I, I want you to hear that. I'm not invalidating what Paul taught, especially when it comes to the Romans road, which I don't have time to go through that whole thing today. But just Google Romans road, and you can see basically the verses that are used, typically evangelistically in the Western church to presumably lead somebody to Jesus. But you know what? I, I, I prayed all of that. I believed all of that. I did all of that. You know, I had my, I did my Christian moment back in the day in probably 1978. And <laughs> meanwhile, after that, I lived like the devil. So if the magic formula is to pray this prayer and repeat this prayer after me and bow your head and close your eyes and raise your hand and, you know, you just, you know, con confess with the mouth. But if there is no 
outward flow of that presumably inward transformational moment, like the evidence, the fruit proves the root. So if there's no fruit from that, then something was wrong with the root. We didn't get rooted. So I like, um, I like to go back and revisit the book of first John. And the reason why is the book of first John, not the gospel, John, not the gospel of John, but the book of first John, it actually gives us litmus tests to judge our own faith, not to judge somebody else's faith. The first John is the, it puts our profession of faith under the microscope. And so we, we have tests that are given in first John that legitimately and boldly unapologetically say, if this isn't in place, then you don't have faith. If this isn't in place, then you have not really been born again. If you, if you're living like this, then you're not a Christian. Like these are like big, important verses, by the way, personal testimony, the book of first John is what, uh, Scott Johnson used in the early 1990s to show me that I was a sham Christian, that I was just a typical Southern dude who prayed the prayer. And like, I was living like the devil and Scott knew it, but I was holding on to the fact that I prayed that prayer. And Scott's like, man, that prayer doesn't mean anything. Look at your life. And I'm like, no, I called upon the name of the Lord. I believe these biblical facts. I'm going to heaven when I die. And so what Scott did over the period of a couple of years (laughs) Like it it literally took a couple of years to get me to pry my hands loose of this experience that I thought I had when I was eight years old. And Scott said, well, Jeff, what he kept asking me, well, what does the Bible say? I hear what you're saying, Jeff, but what does the Bible say? And it used to infuriate me because I couldn't argue with the Bible. And so let me just read you some of these verses that um, I'm not going to preach them or anything, but I just want you to listen to these. So in first John in chapter number two, you, you read this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay. So right there, you have a massive test. What are you in love with? Do you love the Lord? Do you love his kingdom? Do you love kingdom values? Do you love kingdom priorities? Or do you love the world and its values? Do you love the world and the social expectations? Do you love to be loved by the world? Do you love fitting in? Do you love popularity? Do you love being embraced and applauded and accepted and conformed to the world? Well, again, I'm not going to preach these, but just I want you to think about that because that was huge to me back in the day, you know, in the early 90s when I was being confronted with my life versus what the Bible said, I totally loved the world. I enjoyed my sin. I, I, I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. I didn't want God's parameters on my life. I wanted to give myself to whatever I wanted in the world. And yet I still said I was a Christian. Now, it's still like in 1 John 2, here's, here's one. Um, and for, for all of us, this is especially in a culturally inflamed, very conflict-oriented, divided culture. Um, listen to this. Whoever says, this is 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, uh, whoever says he is in the light, and that's a reference to walking in light, Jesus is the light, whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so we have another test here. We say we belong to Jesus, but we have hatred in our heart. 
Maybe that hatred is expressed as, as racism or classism, or maybe it is um, expressed in, in hating the opposite gender. Maybe it's expressed in bitterness. Maybe it's expressed in, in, in just a heart that is um, very, very insular, like you trust you, you love you, you're not letting anybody touch you. But, but ultimately, John is saying, if, if you are loveless towards other people, but you say you're a Christian, you're not. That's what he's saying. Um, here's one that's a big one. It's actually these verses that that captured me uh, in the early 90s, like struck deep into my lost heart. It brought the fear of God on me. First John chapter 2, verse 3. This is the one that got me. By this, we know that we have come to know him. All right, pay attention. By what's about to follow, this is how we know that we've come to know Jesus. By this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Again, that's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. That's the dagger that brought me to my knees. Because again, my, my testimony was I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I've asked him to come into my heart. I've been water baptized. And that was my Christianity. I had kind of like bought into the formula. I had the formula working for me because that's all the religious authorities in my life as a child told me, just believe these things and repeat this prayer and you're going to heaven when you die. And then Scott would look at me and say, yeah, but what does the Bible say? (laughs) <laughs> that dude was so annoying. I owe my life to him, but that dude was so annoying. And <laughs> at that time, cause I was unsaved and he was cornering me and he would say, yeah, but what Jeff, he made me read these out loud, loud, like we're at work and he's making me read these out loud. And I had to read whoever says I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. And this is how we know that we are in Jesus. So when you look at people in the church and they live in perpetual sin, and please think beyond, you know, just the nasty nine or the dirty dozen sins, the ones that get all the press, you know, people are like, well, that guy's a drunk or that, that lady's a, she's loose or they, that person drinks or that person gets high. And, you know, we, those are easy to peg sins. Listen, if you're in bondage and addiction, you need to be born again because Jesus ransom and frees those that he saves. And if you're sleeping around and you're sexually promiscuous and yet you go to church and lift your hands on Sunday, you're a hypocrite. You need to get born again. How do I know that? Well, because the Bible says it, but those are like the nasty nine of the dirty dozen. What about the person that lives with constant bitterness in her heart? That's a sin. That's a perpetual state of being in sin. And that's a person that says, yeah, but I'm safe with Jesus. I'll go and worship Jesus. Well, how do you know? Because if you do not keep his commandments and what are his commandments, we forgive even as we have been forgiven by God, that we're actually not allowed to tolerate bitterness in our heart, that we're supposed to operate in humility. We're, we're literally supposed to give, forgive everybody for everything. That's a commandment. That's what it means to pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And so if people live with bitterness and unforgiveness in their heart perpetually year after year, and they just refuse to forgive, they refuse to make it right, that person's never been saved. Now I have some compassion because typically a person like that has been deeply wounded and deeply hurt, but we all have. Okay. You're, you're not the only one. Everybody's been hurt. Everybody's been wronged. Everybody's been stabbed in the back. Everybody's got a reason not to forgive, but the Bible says that those who are forgiven by God will be forgivers of others. And a person that refuses to do that needs to be saved. 
They need to be born again. They need a radical transformational encounter because once you realize you've been forgiven everything by God who deserved your loyalty, worship, your honor, your submission, your servanthood, your your absolute surrender, and instead you lived your life in some form of rebellion against him, and yet he came to you, paid the price for you to be forgiven, paid the, paid the price for you to be redeemed, set you free, forgave you completely, all of it, under the blood. And for you to turn around and walk away from that kind of reality, presumably saved, and then go and refuse to forgive a lesser debt owed to you by a fellow sinner, like the one who had no sin forgave you of all of your sin, and then we leave that kind of moment and refuse to forgive other sinners who have sinned against us, that's not salvation. That goes along with not, not loving your brother, and it also goes along with, you know, refusing to keep his commandments. And I would say this, if you're living a lifestyle that is in rebellion against God, this is why I struggle so much with this movement in the church to affirm um, non-biblical sexuality. Like the idea that people that, that can be in the kingdom and live in flagrant violation of biblical sexuality, like whether it be heterosexual sleeping around or pornography or homosexuality, that's all sexual sin. And if somebody adopts a pattern and a lifestyle of saying this is okay because I'm under grace, that's deception and you've never been born again. Whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, or you know, you're just looking at porn and doing what you do as a habitual thing, you need to get radically born again. You need to be delivered. That's not a Christian struggling with a sin. That's a non-Christian trying to do righteousness in his or her own behavior. And you've got to repent. You've got to change your mind. You've got to fall on your face before the Lord of glory and say, God, I can't save myself. I can't deliver myself. I can't get free. There must be an encounter with you that radically changes who I am. And that's what salvation is all about. Paul said it, excuse me, John said it a different way in 1 John 1. So I've been in 1 John 2, but in 1 John 1 in verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Okay. It's just very plain. It's like not even, it's not even diplomatic. John's saying, yeah, if you say you're one with God, you're saved, but you walk in darkness, you're a liar. I mean, that is exactly what the Bible says. He says, if we say we have fellowship him with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. So right there, like the, the, the fruit of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus is that you walk in fellowship with other Christians. You do not walk in darkness. And then verse eight says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what does that mean? It means if you can say, well, that's not sin. I, that's not a sin in my life. And yet the Bible defines it as sin. The Bible says right there in 1 John 1, 8, that if you think that way, if you call sin to be not sin, just because you're not comfortable with it or you, you've rewritten the Bible or you like to think like the culture and the culture says that this isn't sin anymore, the Bible says you are self-deceived and the truth is not in you. So that is, it's, it's a little bit more intense than you're wrong about an issue. It means you're deluded and you're deceived and you, the truth, the truth, the gospel truth, the saving truth of the gospel doesn't live within you. If you live in self-deception, walk in darkness, refuse to live in a pattern of obedience to the commandments of God. If you do not love your brother, if you live in bitterness, the Bible says just in one book, I could go to other places, but in first John, the Bible says repeatedly, this is a false conversion. 
You have enough religion to make you miserable, but you don't have Jesus who makes you free. And so, you know, these things from not loving the world to not loving people, um, you know, to living with bitterness, to being in bondage, to moral sins. Like the gospel's so diluted and watered down in America that people think, well, I'm just struggling. Well, you're, you're, you're probably not struggling. You've probably never been saved. And I'm not trying to badger you. I'm just saying like, it can't be both. Like, honestly, read the New Testament and show me, just show me where there is any allowance for people to live in unbroken patterns of disobedience, immorality, lovelessness, and darkness, and still be called Christians. It's just not there. We've made it up. We've totally done away with the the issue of sanctification being a part, a necessary component of your justification. If you're justified, you will be being sanctified. And if there is no sanctification, you know, fruit, there is no justification root. Like, guys, I'm, I'm just trying to be biblical. Like, I know this makes me a maverick because I am pushing against the hyper-evangelistic, watered-down, diluted presentation of the American gospel, which isn't the biblical gospel. Let me give it to you from 1 John 3, Okay hear this just listen to this it was first john 2 and first john 3 that imprisoned me to the conviction that this is back in the 90s that i was lost it was shocking to me i was so proud and it took two years for me to turn loose of of holding on to that little prayer i prayed as a boy and calling that my christianity and it was a passage in first john 2 and this one i'm about to read in first john 3 listen to first john 3 8 Just listen to it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's like the nuclear weapon right there of false Christianity. So just real quickly, because that was a lot of of words in those three verses, but it's very plain. Let me just give you the bullet points. The Bible says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And the reason God the Son appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So one of the reasons Jesus Christ appeared in his earthly mission was to destroy the works of the devil. And some of the works of the devil can be expressed as the practice of sinning, which John says that's of the devil. So if a person says they are a Christian, but their life is an, an unbroken pattern and practice of sinning, the Bible says that person's not a Christian, that person is of the devil. Because the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And if the the pattern of unbroken sin is still ongoing in a person's life, that that means they haven't been broken off from the devil. They're still of their father, the devil. And and, and in case we're cloudy on verse 8, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
And then it tells you why. Because God's seed abides in that person and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So let's, let's reverse engineer that. If you are born of God, it is impossible for you to live a lifestyle of continual sin. That's what the Bible says. Why? Because you have God's seed. You have the very life force of God living in you through the person of Jesus Christ and more specifically in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And because the person of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, it is impossible for you to live a life of perpetual sin. Why? Because you're born again. You're born from on high. You are a new creation in Christ. You're not your own. You're not what you used to be. You're not what the world is. It is a spiritual reality. And so when it says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, we don't get to vote on that. It's what the Bible says. And then verse 10 is just the summary. By this, by what? By the issue of who is living righteously versus who is living unrighteously. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I mean, good night. How did we lose this? The evidence of who is God's child and who is the devil's child, the evidence is seen in how we live. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There it is. So what do we say to Christians who are living in sin? They're getting drunk. They're hiding. They're looking at porn all the time. They're sleeping around. They're gossiping. They're slandering. They're murmuring. Oh, and by the way, they sing on the praise team. By the way, they serve in children's ministry. By the way, they go on the mission field. But what does the Bible say? It's not about what they're doing in ministry. The Bible says, look at the outflow of their life. And by the way, we're not supposed to police this. I'm not going around and, you know, saying, hey, give me your phone. I want to see what your, you know, your internet history is. It's not my job to look at any. I'm looking at me. I'm like, how does my life match up with this? Because I'm going to give an account for me. And if my life was a lifestyle of unbroken patterns of sin that I was excusing or managing or hiding or just giving myself fully to, the Bible says, Jeff Lyle, you're lost. You have religion, but you don't have redemption. You, you have some kind of outward expression of Christianized thinking, but you've never been born again. And so those are the people that at the end of the age that Jesus talks to in Matthew 7, when they stand before him at the final judgment, and they're saying, hey, we did all this stuff for you. We cast out demons in your name. Hey, we prophesied in your name. Lord, in your name, we did many wonderful works. Now, watch this. Those are people that had some kind of sense that they were committed Christians. And you know what Jesus says to these people? He says, depart from me. I never knew who you were. What does that mean? He means all that stuff that they did in his name was never valid because they had never, ever come to him in genuine repentance Submission and surrender. He never got introduced to them. That's a terribly overwhelming thought. And here's my personal opinion as I finish today's podcast. Um, my personal thought from my years of experience in local church ministry is that a large amount of people that attend church have never been saved. I know that's an unpopular thing, but I say lots of unpopular things on this podcast. And I say it, and especially in this one right here, I'm saying it because some of you that are listening need to really think about what I'm saying. 
Um, I, I'm concerned about my generation. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I'm concerned about the boomers. I don't know how many boomers listen to this podcast, but if you're listening, I'm, I'm concerned about you. But I'm deeply concerned about young millennials and Gen Zers who did not have the luxury of growing up in a church culture that was strongly committed to biblical truth. So the younger you are, the more likely it is that you have grown up with a diluted notion and understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I'm calling on you to investigate your own life, no matter what generation you're in. And I'm asking you maybe to consider that you need a radical moment like I had when I was 24 years old, when I thought I was a Christian because I believed in my head and I prayed with my mouth a certain prayer. And um, meanwhile, looking back on that now, it was very clear. It is very clear to me that back then I was actually ruling my own life. I, I obeyed enough not to get in big trouble. I obeyed enough to soothe my guilty conscience, but in my heart of hearts, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, no matter what. And that was evidence of me never having submitted to Jesus Christ. Salvation is a surrender. You hear me on that. Salvation is not a prayer. It's not a prayer. Not unless that prayer is giving expression to the surrender that took place before the prayer. And so you can pray as many prayers as you want. You can recite all of the religious stuff that you want. You can have your doctrinal statement aligned and meticulous to a T. But if you have never surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're still the Lord of your own life. And that epidemic has hit the church. And that's why one of the reasons why the church is in the pitiful shape that it is. People don't serve. People don't give. People don't witness. People don't pray. <laughs> people aren't Christians. <laughs> They're church members. They go to church and they want what they want and they think the church belongs to them and Jesus will reinforce over and over again uh, to them, it's not your church. It's not your pastor's church. It's not the apostle's church. It's not the prophet's church. Jesus is the head of the church and everybody else is a part of the body. And so we, we don't tell him what he's going to do and we don't ask, we don't enter into presumed negotiations with him to tell him why our sin's not as bad as what the Bible says it is. And like there is no negotiating table when it comes to the Lordship of Christ. It's Jesus Christ is Lord. The early confession of the church was Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. And it involved a submission and a bowing to him. So I'm asking you, I'm coming as a brother. I'm asking you, what's going on in your heart and does it align with the word of God? Go read 1 John like five times this week and just see what the Lord does. Focus on statements like chapter two and chapter three that is very clear that if you're living in patterns of disobedience to the word of God, and again, I want to be careful here and I don't want to excuse unbroken sin, but I do want to recognize that nobody walks on water. Nobody is, I'm talking about none of us. Nobody is completely, perfectly, a hundred percent free from any sinful thought, any sinful attitude, any sinful word or any sinful action. We are not perfect yet. That's not what first John is talking about. It's talking about practicing sin. It means that your life is trapped and snared and you are in agreement with sin. And it doesn't matter how much righteousness you do in the other areas. If this sin is dominating you, you need to get saved. You need to get free. You need to get born again. Call on the name of the Lord in that level of desperation. Like forget the formulized Jesus come into my heart prayer. 
make it more like Jesus. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman walking. I need rescue. Here is my life. I give it to you. That's way more like biblical salvation. And then you pick up your cross daily. You deny yourself. You follow him. Your life's not about you. That's Christianity. And if the church will return to that, we'll be prepared for what's coming. If the church continues in America to can to just continue to be this watered down, diluted, cost me nothing paradigm of salvation. Watch what happens when all hell breaks loose in America. And it will happen when all hell breaks loose in America and people are forced to choose between Jesus versus their personal freedoms like buying and selling and getting food and owning a house and having a job. Like it will come down to that. That's biblical prophecy. It's going to come down to that. It's already like that in certain places of the world. It will come to your country. And if you're not if you're not dead yet, if you're not carrying your cross and dying to yourself right now, you will not be doing it then. So what what am I saying? I got to quit. Time's gone. What I'm saying is it's time for you to get the real thing if you haven't. Quit playing church, quit goofing around with your soul, quit being a Christianized pagan and stop this nonsense and go ahead. You surrender you. You don't worry about anybody else. You surrender you to the Son of God because he's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious, he's awesome. And what he'll do with a surrendered life is measureless. And he's waiting on you. So forget about what your friends are doing. Forget about what your spouse is doing. Forget about what the people in your church are doing. And make it personal and just say, am I truly born again? And if you are concerned that you're not, a fresh surrender will serve you well. And I don't think there's a better time to do it than right now. I'm out of options. The clock has ticked too far. So I'm going to sign off and leave the Holy Spirit to finish the message in your own heart. We'll talk to you next time. Have you picked up a copy of Jeff's book, Figuring It Out As I Go? His life story of abandonment as a child, an embrace of the occult and addiction as a teenager, and a nearly deadly battle with depression and rage as a young adult serves as an intense backdrop to Jeff's supernatural conversion at the age of 24. From there, Jeff writes of powerful seasons of deliverance, healing, and breakthrough, which were followed by tragedy, betrayal, and deep challenges which only God could turn around. If you want to hear a powerful account of the triumph of God's grace and Jeff's surprising journey into the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, pick up a copy of Figuring It Out As I Go at jefflyle.com or wherever else you buy books. You can also download a copy of Jeff narrating Figuring Out As I Go on audible.com.